I would like to turn your attention this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I think they're going to put the text up on the screen behind me, but I'd just like to read it to you and let us consider the word of the Lord. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged. Hebrews, we like to refer to it in most of our Bibles, it's referred to as a letter, or if you're reading from a King James Bible, it's referred to as the epistle of Hebrews. Actually, Hebrews was not a letter or an epistle. Hebrews is an early Christian sermon. The other thing about Hebrews is we don't know who preached it. We don't know who wrote it. There's a lot of debate, but we can't be certain. I know in some of the older Bibles, they'll say the epistle of Hebrew, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, that was added in during publication. That's not a part of the ancient text. But Hebrews is actually an ancient Christian sermon written by a first century Christian pastor addressing a Christian congregation somewhere in North Africa, maybe around Alexandria, Egypt. These believers that the pastor is addressing are losing confidence in the gospel. They're beginning to drift away. He is concerned that some of them are tempted by an evil heart in in unbelief, departing from the living God. He's concerned that many of them have stopped worshiping, uh, stopped attending worship services, convinced themselves that they don't have to be in a worship service. And others have failed to grow in spiritual maturity, favoring the milk of the word over solid food. In my many years of doing ministerial development, I've had people encourage me from time to time, Dan, you need to keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. The problem with keeping simple, stupid is that it leaves people stupid and simple. The pastor of Hebrews is concerned that the church has so embraced the elementary principles of the gospel, still the meat, of the, the milk of the word, that they've not grown in the faith, that they've not grown in understanding the mysteries of the faith. The spiritual condition of these believers is described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 as hands hanging down, feeble knees, and lame feet. In other words, they have no strength to worship, no stamina to serve, and no direction for ministry. And sadly, many of us in this room and many of our friends and colleagues and family not in this room are struggling with the same temptations. We have unanswered prayers. We don't understand why God lets certain things happen. 
The COVID epidemic has really challenged a lot of people. At the beginning of the COVID epidemic, when we were trying to determine what was essential and not essential, many churches just shut down. And I said then, and I'll repeat now, if people decide that church is not essential to their lives in COVID, they will decide that church is not essential in their lives after COVID. And we've seen that. Most churches are struggling to regain pre-COVID attendance. Most statistics show that most churches are anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of pre-COVID attendance. That means 20 to 40 percent of pre-COVID Christians are no longer attending church. They've decided the gospel is no longer relevant to them. Our culture is drifting into what I refer to as a post-Christian, post-modern, secular fog. We're stumbling around. We don't see any end. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like driving down 75 on a foggy morning. We're terrified we're going to run into somebody or somebody's going to run into us. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we are. So what is the remedy for this kind of spiritual malaise? How do we remedy this condition? The pastor declares, look unto Jesus. We need to focus our hearts and minds one more time on who and what Jesus Christ is. He says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end. He is our source of joy. He is our source of inspiration and our example in suffering. He is our triumphant king. So let's take some time this morning and consider what an ancient pastor wants to tell us about who Jesus is. Now in doing this, I want to point out something. The difference between milk and solid food is milk is easy to take in and easy to digest. But in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a tender steak. Meat in the ancient world, they did not have refrigeration. So in the ancient world, the way they preserved meat was to cure it in salt or to cut it in strips and hang it down and let it air dry. So the best you could get would be the equivalent of a, a beef jerky today. In other words, if we're going to eat solid food, if we're going to eat the meat of the word, We've got to understand it's going to be tough to chew, tough to digest, but necessary for growing, necessary for understanding the faith. The first thing the pastor tells us is that Jesus is God's Son. He writes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is God's Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and by upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of majesty on high. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is God's Son? The fact of the matter is, throughout the Bible, the term Son of God or Sons of God was used in many different ways. And it was a very common term in the ancient Mediterranean culture. Adam is referred to as a Son of God by virtue of creation. The angels are referred to as Sons of God, again, by virtue of creation. 
In the ancient world, there were many sons and daughters of God. If you remember your high school mythology, if you think about it for a moment, Zeus or Jupiter, however you want to address him, would be looking down from Mount Olympus and he would see a beautiful human woman and he would come running down the mountain and change form, maybe into a bull or to a man, and he would seduce the woman, and that's how Achilles was born, or Hercules was born. And these were considered demigods, men or women who were part human and part God. So is that what we mean when we say that Jesus is God's Son? Well, we know that Jesus is uncreated so that he's not like Adam or the angels. We know that Jesus is not a demigod, Yahweh did not come down and take some form and seduce some woman. That's not what the Luke says. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is God's Son? We get the answer by looking at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Greek term there is monogenes. Mono mean, being one. Only one of its kind or unique. Genes means generated. So Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Jesus Christ is the uniquely and eternally begotten Son. He is co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is fully divine and fully human. Not a demigod like in Roman or Greek tradition. Fully human and fully divine in a way that neither is compromised. In Christ He's not less human and more God. He's not less God and more human. He is fully and equally human and fully and equally divine. He is the union of uncreated and eternal divinity and created, uh, created contemporary, contemporary humanity. He is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. He is the savior of humanity. He is the ruler of all creation. And we, are, and we are to worship Him and glorify Him equally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God. The pastor goes on. Because Jesus is God's Son, He is much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In early Christian Jewish, first century Christian and Jewish world, there were some who had developed a, 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 a misunderstanding who Jesus was, a, a heresy, an error in who Jesus was. And we refer to this as angel Christology. They believed that Jesus was created by fa the Father, that Jesus was the first creation of the Father, and that he was a great archangel. That's similar to what the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. And it was a very uh, widespread ancient Christian heresy. But the pastor of Hebrews says no Jesus is not an angel he says that angels are simply ministering spirits but on the other hand Jesus is the eternal son who sits at the right hand of the father and the angels worship and glorify Jesus the second thing we need to understand is in this ancient culture they had developed this angel spirituality and they viewed these angels to be somewhat like demigods and someone like heroes. An example is the modern celebrity cult in which we, uh, we make athletes and actors and entertainers and public figures into demigods. 
They become cultural influencers. We cut our hair the way they cut their hair. They get tattoos, so we go get tattoos. Whatever they do, we do. They're our influencers. The pastor at Hebrew, of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is to be our influencer. That Jesus is better than Tom Cruise. Jesus is better than Scarlett Johansson. Jesus is better than Tom Brady or LeBron James. He's better than Captain America or Iron Man. He's better than Luke Skywalker. He's better than Captain Kirk. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is our influencer. The pastor says that because Jesus is God's Son, He is worthy of more glory than Moses. The pastor declares in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. The pastor is telling us that Moses is the servant of God. Jesus is the son of God. Moses was the steward of God's house. Jesus is the master of God's house. Moses was the giver of the law. Jesus is the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, great I am who spoke the law to Moses on Mount Sinai from the burning bush. Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the law. According to the flesh, Jesus was born under the law so that he could redeem those of us who are under the law. Human civilization needs law. Without law, there's chaos. There's disorder. Without just and righteous laws, there is oppression, warfare, violence. The purpose of law is to legislate morality, to enforce a code of social and civil conduct, Law has its foundation in God's will. Biblical concepts of justice and righteousness are formed by the character of God and are necessary for human flourishing. Law is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that we are tutored in Christ by the law. However, the law can't save humanity because the law can't change humanity. Human history is a record of humans passing laws, trying to deal with oppression, trying to deal with injustice, but the problem is, is we find new ways to break new laws. We're corrupt to the core. None is righteous. No, not one. We want the law to serve us and to privilege us. And by serving us and privileging us, 
the law necessarily then doesn't serve others and doesn't privilege others. The law cannot save humanity. Paul was deeply concerned about the Galatian church and their misunderstanding of the law. He says that some of the leaders in the Galatian church have disturbed the church by preaching a distorted gospel that has bewitched the Galatian believers. To such an extent, Paul says, they have been severed from Christ and have fallen from grace. What heresy did they embrace? What misunderstanding had they embraced? Seeking to be justified by the law. In seeking to be righteous by the law, they're distorting the gospel of Christ. To place our confidence in the law, into the politics of this present age, is to fall from grace. If we place our confidence in the law, then Paul says Christ is of benefit to us. It is the failure of law. It is the failure of human politics that makes the cross of Christ necessary. In the cross, God has assumed human sinfulness. God has taken upon God's self the entire history of human injustice and violence. This present age must die so that the power of sin can be broken. The only way the power of sin can be broken is death. And the only way that the power of death can be broken is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus does what the law cannot do. It makes us all new. Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is better than the law of Moses superior to the Constitution of the United States. The kingdom of God is superior to all the kingdoms of humanity. The teachings of Jesus supersede and transcend the politics of this present age. The church of Jesus Christ is more significant than the Democrat or Republican parties. The love and mercy of Christ is better than capitalism or socialism. Jesus brings to us a reality that is utterly different from the reality of this present fallen age. The pastor goes on. Because Jesus is God's son, he offers a greater inheritance than Joshua. The pastor writes in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Joshua was a political and military leader. God had judged the Canaanites because of their evil and ejected them from the land, and God had appointed Joshua and the Israelites to inherit the land as the promised land. But the problem is that at the end of the day, the Canaanites were still there. And if you read the Old Testament from the time of Joshua until the end of the Old Testament, it's nothing but one war right after another, nothing but one more conflict after another, more violence, more evil, more sinfulness. There is never any shalom among the people, that peace of God. 
So, our, I mean, we're disappointed with the world. That's one of the things I see a lot of times when I hear sociologists and politicians. They're really disappointed with human history. We don't like history. So, you know, we don't, we don't like the way history is interpreted, but all history does is just reflect who we are. It reflects who we are. There is no rest in human society because we need something more than a military leader can bring us. We need something more than a political leader can bring us. And that's what Jesus does. The people of Israel had committed idolatry and struggled with a divided allegiance generation after generation. And Joshua warns that there is no way that we can serve God and with a divided allegiance. Joshua declared, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and serve Him only. We need to understand that if, if we as Christians in the United States suffer from a divided allegiance between the politics of this present age and the kingdom of God, then we will compromise who God has called us to be. We need to hear the words of Jesus. No man can serve two masters. He will love one. He will hate the other. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And all of these other things will be added unto you. We've got to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness, Satan gave him a political alternative. Jesus, if you'll just bow before me and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus said, oh no, oh no. You must worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. The church should never be a tool of the state. The church should always be the prophetic conscience of the state. We need to be reminded that our citizenship is heavenly, that God will shape the nations of the earth, that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I love America. I'm happy where I live. Is it perfect? No. Do we need to do more work? Yes. As President Obama once said, we need to continually seek our better angels. We need to acknowledge that. But let me tell you something. America will not stand in the judgment of God. No nation on this earth will ever stand the judgment of God. Every nation on this earth will fall and crumble and God will raise up a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that is our inheritance as the people of God. Jesus is greater than Joshua because only Jesus can make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. For all of that has passed away. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That means he's better than Ronald Reagan. He's better than Barack Obama. He's better than Donald Trump. And he's better than Joe Biden. All of the rulers of the earth will bow before him and confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And that is the confession that we need to make every day day of our lives yeah somebody give God some praise in the house people don't often shout a lot when I preach you know why they're busy chewing 
Remember what I told you? You're going to get the meat. You got to chew on it a while. You can't chew. It's, it's rude to, to, to eat your food and talk at the same time. So I don't get upset when people don't shout me down. In fact, I'd rather you sit there and listen to me and then you talk, shout me down later if you want to. <laughs> because Jesus is God's son, the pastor tells us that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. This is a strange one. We're familiar with Joshua. We're familiar with Moses. But who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek, during the time of Abraham, was the high priest of Jerusalem. This is before Jerusalem was the city of David. This was before God had called Moses out. This was during the generation of Abraham. My point is, is that in Jerusalem during the days of Abraham, there were people who were worshiping the same God as Abraham. The pastor writes in chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. During the first century, there had arose a Melchizedek cult or a following of people that were following after Melchizedek. Now when the pastor tells us that Melchizedek has neither father nor mother, neither beginning of life nor end of days, he's not telling us, he's not telling us that Melchizedek is eternal. He's telling us what these people who were following after Melchizedek believe. Remember what he's doing is correcting errors. He's correcting their misunderstandings of Moses. He's correcting their misunderstandings of Joshua. So here he's correcting their misunderstandings of Melchizedek. Melchizedek predated the Levitical priesthood by several hundred years. And in some Jewish tradition, this first century following of Melchizedek, they believed that Melchizedek was to be the high priest eternally. But the pastor says, no, no. The pastor declares that the Levitical priesthood was not perfect. Therefore, there is need of a new priest who comes not according to the law, a new priest who's not descended from the Levites, a new priest that is not according to the power of the law, but according to the power of an endless life. Jesus is the one who has died and been raised from the dead and eternally lives forevermore. Jesus is the one who is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the high priest, the only high priest who continues forever and is unchangeable. Only Jesus is the one who can save to the uttermost. Only Jesus has an excellent, more excellent ministry, a mediator of a better covenant, established from better promises. Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as an eternal sacrifice through the eternal spirit, with, uh, not of goats, and, uh, but the, the Levitical priest 
always offered their sacrifices on a daily basis. The Levitical priest offered calves and goats and lambs. But Jesus offers his sacrifice only one time. And he offers himself as a sacrifice. And he is the eternal sacrifice who is utterly and totally sufficient to bear the sins of humanity. So let's go back for a minute and talk about what it means for Jesus to be fully human and fully God. The union of uncreated divinity and temporal created humanity. What does that mean? You know, for years I've had people tell me that doctrine doesn't matter. All that matters is your relationship with God. The problem is developing a relationship means getting to know that person. I've been around, my wife and I have been together for more than 40 years. I'm glad she's a silent woman because I don't want her to tell you everything she knows me, about me. I know her. I know her life story. I know her childhood stories. I know the house she lived in. I know the road she lived in. I know who her mom and dad were. I know who her siblings are. I know who her grandparents are, her aunts and uncles are. We've done ancestry DNA. I know what her DNA is all about. I know her. But I know her because I love her and I wanted to develop a relationship with her. So you can't say theology is not important. It's just about the relationship. If you love God, if you love Jesus, you want to know more about Jesus. You want to chew on this tough meat. So again, I want to ask, what does it mean that Jesus is the union of eternal, uncreated divinity and temporal created humanity. It means that Jesus is God in the flesh. The high priest who sympathizes with all human weaknesses. Every male weakness and every female weakness. All human weaknesses. That he was tempted in all things as we're tempted. In Christ, God shares the sufferings of humanity. As Jesus looked at the crowds, Matthew says that he looked at the crowds and felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus stood at the entrance of Lazarus' tomb, he wept and he groaned. One of his best friends had died. He was deep in sorrow. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he struggled with the will of God. And in agony, he cried out, Not my will, but yours be done. I pray the Lord's Prayer every day, actually several times every day. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And I always stutter over that part. Because sometimes I struggle with allowing God's will to be a part of my life. Sometimes I look at what's going out in the world and certainly that can't represent the will of God. Jesus struggled. What I'm saying to you is those of us who are struggling, trying to understand the will of God, those of us who are struggling, trying to understand how God has guided and directed our paths, why we're having to deal with so much grief or trauma or turmoil. Jesus gets it. 
In the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed with such earnestness that his sweat became as great drops of blood. And on the cross, he cried out the words of Psalm 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, he is utterly abandoned by the Father. I get it. During the COVID pandemic, I quit counting at 42 at the number of friends and family that died from COVID. One of the problems that a lot of us, and Pastor Chad in the video talked about the problem with mental illness, one of the problems is that for the first times in our lives, you know, typically when people die, we go through this grieving process. You know, we, we, we um, get depressed, then we get angry, and then we start bargaining, and then we start resolving the issue, and then at some point in time, typically six to 12 months later, we at least get accustomed to the loss. We don't ever get over it, but we get accustomed to it. The problem with COVID is we never got to fulfill the cycle. We were stuck in the middle of depression or stuck in the middle of anger when we heard of someone else we knew who died. So we never got to work all this out. And a lot of us are still trying to work it out. And it's not just COVID. It's broken families. It's all sorts of things. We have this sense of abandonment. We feel like, you know, and I'll be honest with you, there are times, I let's look out there, Sharon, my wife and I were talking yesterday. What's your greatest temptation? Unbelief. It's not that I doubt in God's existence. I just look at the concerns of the world and the concerns of humanity and just wonder sometimes if God really cares. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets that moment of unbelief. Jesus gets that moment of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What does it mean that he is our high priest? It means he has been tempted in every way in which you and I have been tempted. It means that he embodies our weaknesses. It means he took, take, takes upon himself our sinfulness. And on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus transforms us. Jesus shares the total agony of human suffering. He died. He was placed in a grave. He descended into Hades. In every way that is the most weak part of humanity, death, burial, and Hades, the domain of the dead, Jesus experienced but he came, he came up out of it. And because he came up out of it, the fact that he is the union of full divinity and full humanity not only means that he shares in our weaknesses, in our senses of abandonment, in our sinfulness, but it also means we get to share in his glory. When we see him, we shall be like him. 
It also means that just as he has taken upon himself our humanity, he gives to us the eternal life of God so we can share in the glory and the power of the eternal God. The Apostle Paul wrote, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, for death no longer has dominion over him. And that means death no longer has dominion over you and over me. The pastor insists in Hebrews 2.17, it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away our sins. If Jesus doesn't share in my humanity, if he doesn't share in the humanity of my brothers, if he doesn't share in the humanity of my sisters, Jesus cannot be my mediator before God. And the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Timothy that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and humanity. The Apostle John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I write to you that you do not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, you know, I know that uh, uh, Pastor Terry's daughter is a lawyer. Uh, and my, one of my best friends is a lawyer. Let me tell you what a lawyer can do for you. I was sitting in a courtroom one day going to open the place with prayer. I had been invited by the judge to come open for prayer. And you know, when you're sitting in the courtroom, the sheriff's deputies bring out all the, all the guys that have got to be tried and everything. And they brought some guys out. And one of the guys looked just like one of my cousins. I mean, I, for a moment, I thought, there's Joey. You know, it wouldn't surprise me. I looked, but I found it wasn't. So, but I was interested. So I stuck around. And I watched. Let me tell you what a lawyer did. The prosecuting attorney got up, and he had convinced me that this guy was the most corrupt crook in the county and needed to be thrown away into the jail forever. His defense attorney got up and convinced me that this was a guy who was a subject of some bad judgments and some bad decisions and, and, and environment and just, be, and just needed to be given another chance. That day, I realized what Jesus does for me. Jesus stands before God the Father, and you're making accusations against me, and the devil's making accusations against me, and Jesus looks at the Father and says, just wait a minute. He may have fallen, but he's still mine. As our fully divine, fully human High priest, Jesus is far superior to the general overseer of the church of God. Far better than the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. He's even better than Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes. He is the mediator. In view of who Jesus is, the pastor offers some let us exhortations all throughout his sermon. And I'm going to do this real quick. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. I told you this earlier. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid, just keeps people simple and stupid. 
Let's move on from kindergarten. Let's move on from a sixth grade teaching of Scripture. And let's jump into some meat. Let's chew on it. Because it's only that meat of the Word that we chew on that will lead us to perfection. In chapter 12, verse 1, he said, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. About 16 months ago, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. And those of you who traveled out west know what that does to your biological time. I mean, it's three hours difference out there. So over here, I go to bed at 9. There, I want to go to bed at 6. Over here, I get up at 5. Over there, I got up at 2. So I was laying in my, about 3 o'clock in the morning, laying in my hotel room, wide awake, didn't know what to do. And I, 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 when it's warm, I run every morning. So I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and get my run done. So I put on my shoes, my, uh, my T-shirt, my shorts, walked outside about 4, 4.30 in the morning and started running. The sidewalks were all good and lit. Everything was fine. I'm going, man. Back then, I was running about three or four miles a day. Not breaking any speed records, but I was, I was making it, uh, you know. And I'm going down. I was about two miles into my run, and suddenly I tripped. I don't know over what, but I tripped. And it happened so fast, I couldn't catch myself. And so I hit face first into that concrete sidewalk. And it hurt. And I laid there. I laid there a few minutes, and I thought, well, I can't lay here forever. So I got up, pulled out my phone, took a picture of my face, forehead bleed coming, blood coming down my forehead, nose busted, blood coming out my nose, lip, bottom lip busted, blood coming out there. I mean, it's just solid blood coming down here. So I took a picture of myself and sent it to my wife. started walking back to my hotel room. Well, after about a minute or two, I began to realize I was working out the stiffness. After about three or four minutes, I thought, well, I can finish my run. So I did. I just cut off and finished my run and walked into the lobby of the hotel room and the little girl that was in there screamed. I said, no, no, I just tripped. I'll go take a shower. I'll be fine. I go upstairs and take a shower. My knees are all busted up. My shins are all busted up. Blood everywhere. Blood on my t-shirt. I mean, I'm a mess. But I wash it all off and I look in the mirror and I got some scrapes and I'm scarred up. I'm a little bruised, but I look fine. I'm supposed to teach a seminar that day, so I just got up and went and called my seminar and explained to everybody that I had fallen. That afternoon at the end of my seminar, I went back, put on my shoes and my shorts again and went for a six-mile hike in the Sonora Desert. It's the only time I've ever worried about getting lost. It was getting dark, and I wasn't back to my car yet, and I could just see myself spending the night in the desert. But anyway, I made my way back to the car. That next morning was Sunday morning. I got up. I was scheduled to go preach at a church there in Phoenix. So I got up, put on my coat and my pants, grabbed my Bible, had to explain to everybody in the church why my face looked like I'd been mugged, and preach the gospel. The next day, got in the car, drove to the airport in Phoenix. By then, both of my eyes were just as black as they could be. I was blue, black and blue everywhere. And every time I walked somewhere in the airport, people were pointing at me. But this is what I want you to hear. I was running, and I fell. But I got back up and finished the race. I know that this culture we're living in leaves us in despair. 
I know some of us have suffered trauma, and we don't understand why God does what He does and why God doesn't just fix it all. I know sometimes we come to church and we don't feel like worshiping God. And the preacher preaches one of those sermons that's supposed to be inspirational, and we just think he's an idiot. He doesn't understand our pain. He doesn't under and no, he doesn't. And he really doesn't. But what we've got to understand is we get up and we walk by faith. Walking by faith means walking when you're bruised. Walking by faith means walking when you're bleeding. Walking by faith means walking when you're doubting. Then he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15, Let us continually offer sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. There are some, I'm, look, I've been doing this for years. I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old. I pastored for 37 years. I'm a seminary professor now. I get all this stuff. But there are some Sundays I don't want to go to church. And they sing songs I don't know. And I don't want to sing them. I can't keep the rhythm just right. And the preacher makes some stupid statement that because I'm educated that I know that he said something he made. And I just think, why did he have to say that? But this is what I want you to hear. Even though on those days when I'm not sure, when I know that I don't want to be in church, if I will just open my heart and even sing that song I can't keep up with, at some moment that worship is going to begin to rise up out of me and it's going to encourage me and it's going to exhort me and I'm going to be ready to wrestle the devil just one more time. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's stand on our feet this morning. Let's lift our hands and let's sing with strong voices and declare that we will not drift away. And if we fall, we will get back up and we will go into the world and boldly proclaim the word of Jesus Christ. Let's worship God this morning.